Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Howdy and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. It is a pleasure to have you with us as we explore the last week's rugby and coaching content. I've rounded up another three superb coaches this week. So gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, where you are from and your current role. Hi, George Ross, uh, currently living in London, originally from Cornwall. Uh, parent coaching roles a variety of places, uh, but including Harlequins Pathway and Surrey Women. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Alex Grieve. I'm currently up at the Yorkshire Academy. Uh, primary role up there is to manage the developing player programme for Yorkshire. But alongside that, I also coach within the academy as well, primarily with the under-15 PDG group, but then also dive in and help out the 16s and 18s a little bit as well when needed. Hi, I'm Jed Hall. I'm uh, from Cheshire. I'm just a complete trifecta of people working in the academy system. I work across at Sale. I also work with my local club, which is Sandbach. Superb. There's an academy feel to this. I like it. There was a good discussion the last time we had some academy guys on, so uh, looking forward to this one. Uh, I'm going to kick off with my uh, terrible cowboy joke of the week. So why did the cowboy thief take a bath before every stick-up? He wanted to make a clean getaway. There we go. Great stuff. If you are finding us for the first time, welcome. If you are returning, thank you, and we hope you continue to enjoy the roundup. I'll run through the format and then we can get into things. We will be discussing and reviewing some of the content that has taken place over the last week. The guests will give you a brief overview of their learnings from some of the content they have engaged with and we will then discuss and question how we might make it applicable to our environments. At the end, there'll be a quick rundown of what the guys are looking forward to in the coming week. Links to all the content we discuss can be found in the blurb accompanying the podcast and I'll continue to add some other high quality regular podcasts and content. So if you haven't already, please do have a look. Right, George, we are coming to you first. What, uh, what caught your eye this week? Thanks, mate. So, uh, yeah, what put my eye this week was the latest instalment of the Flying Coach podcast, um, hosted by Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, obviously, a bit more in the news at the moment or topic of conversation with his appearances on The Last Dance. And he also co-hosts that with Pete Carroll, who's the Seattle Seahawks uh, head coach. The one released last week, which was uh, an agent for basketball by the name of Scott Boris. Uh, it was an interesting conversation that they had, amongst other things. But the main thing that I took away was uh, the agent's ability and the way that players actually re- relied on the agent for guidance as opposed to their coaches or in addition to rather. Uh, so the topic of conversation kind of flowed into uh, what fear is um, and particularly the Scots focused on a Major League Baseball player. So they've talked around it, okay. Uh, and as we went through, so I think it's got major parallels to the conversation they have with particularly us in development pathways. Um, less, obviously, we're not really dealing with necessarily greatness, so to speak, but with developing those players which put a lot of emphasis on expectation on themselves. Um, and there's some really cool learning from that. The major point is he, he's told the story of this uh, all star Major League Baseballer that would bring him and rung him to try and get him out of the slump. Uh, this is the agent rather than his coach. And he sort of was a bit perplexed as to why this player was feeling comfortable going to the agent rather than the coach. And it turns out that through this conversation, Steve Kerr also pitches in and says he had a similar situation whereby the players feel kind of as much as open as they are with their coaches. I think they feel a little bit threatened by the fact of, I don't want to necessarily go and talk to this coach that I'm not feeling confident or I'm really fearing it. So in this story, the, the uh, batter talks about how he's really fearing this picture that's coming up and he's actually sat in his car in the garage and he's like, I'm not going to the ballpark tonight. And the guy's like, mm, you kind of have to, you know, you're the number one star on the team. So again, as I said, the conversation flows and it all comes back to the, the agent then talking through how he can just work on process. So it's, trying to manage the player's own expectation of himself that he doesn't have to go out and win the game uh, and that he just needs to focus on seeing the ball 
seeing the ball from the pitcher, just trying to focus on those processes, not worrying about the outcome, kind of all that stuff, really. And then we, it's interesting that at the end of the game afterwards, the player rings him back and says that it, the baseball was like a beach ball to him. He ended up hitting three home runs and bringing loads of players in. So it was quite a good process and it was an interesting conversation that Pete and then Steve jumped in on with Scott about how, how and why players would use that. Um, the reason why I thought it was kind of cool and, and something to talk about tonight was because I feel that the player-centred approach that we're all trying to strive towards, I'm starting to think that with conversations like this, that maybe there is a glass ceiling to that as a head coach. Um, when players maybe still have that fear of, I don't want to go to X because they they ultimately decide my game time or if we're in a pathway, they maybe don't want to come and talk to the head the head coach because they're worried of selection or for anything further than that. Um, and I was starting to think and link it to a story from Mike Smith and John Cruden's book of you win in the locker room first and how they uh, utilise support staff within their team such as physios, strength and conditioning coaches, to really uh, test the temperature and test the water of how players, how the team was feeling, and kind of use that subvert information to kind of then really think about what they wanted from their sessions. Did they have to tailor anything? Did they have to go and speak to any specific individuals? And I just thought that was a really cool thing that maybe we're not necessarily doing in the community game. Uh, maybe not in all academy pathways as well. And maybe there's new ways that we can try and think about strategically placing people in specific roles that have that ability to kind of be that go-between buffer of coaches and players and really try and uh, allow that safe space to go without any fear of repercussions, really. And that was my that was my learnings from that. Really like that. I, I think my mind, I, I can never remember which theory it is about kind of leadership and interaction, but there's, there's basically a graph where they kind of draw a line through the middle of kind of the staff roles and, and you would plot the head coach kind of sits above the line and doesn't really necessarily engage in some of that. And then your physios and you say your S&Cs and those people would, would shift, you know, above and below the line and a sports site would only live under the line because they would feed back, but they would never be specific about actually what that conversation looked like and feel like. And that's, yeah, it is a really interesting process. And I always felt not having been a physio or an SNC, that must actually be a really difficult position or a really difficult role to be in where players are going to open up to you and be honest because they've got that relationship. But what do you, if you jump straight back into the head coach and go, oh, by the way, you know, Phil's told me this, blah, 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 and that affects things, do, do they then not have that conversation with you the next time? So, yeah, I think there's a real, there's a real challenge in the, the personal element of those roles. But I guess my question is, how, how would you see that fitting in a community environment, in an academy pathway environment, where I guess maybe there's a bigger... Um, emphasis on parents obviously there's not going to be agents or there's not necessarily the the pressure on I'm going to lose a contract or I'm not going to start if if I go and tell the head coach that I'm not feeling confident but how how would you see that kind of being put into place and, and managing that within the environments you operate yeah so I had some reflection because I sort of ended up realizing I probably had a similar role with the men's club that I coached at this year whereby as an assistant coach, I sort of found myself leaning to the fact that players would have these conversations with me um, and then you sort of become their voice, so to speak, in, to the head coach or the committee and things like that. And I think as, a, as uncomfortable as it was at the start, I think if we as coaches sort of sit down and sort of add that to our roles and responsibilities and really be clear and concise with, if I'm the lead of my DPP setting, cool, brilliant. But then it's sort of, we articulate to all of the support coaches that, you know what, this is one of the main things you need to be doing. And it sort of really fuels your questioning about individuals. Um, something we did with Surrey a few years ago is we had mentor groups, which work quite well. Um, so basically two coaches per 10 players. And at the end of the session or in the middle or at the start, sort of varied, they sort of would facilitate conversations with players. And that kind of worked quite well. Um, and something that probably we could develop further is, as you said, like including parents, because I think there's times where I 
speak for myself, but in our DPP setting, you know, you have parents stood around the sidelines and maybe going interacting with them a little bit more and, and engaging them in the conversations to kind of find out what's going on with that player. Um, but I think it would, coming back to the real crux of the question, is is setting it out as a, almost an expectation of all coaches. And almost, if you know someone is really good at that, sort of handing that as their role and then that allows them to be more comfortable with it. And also as well, if I was the head coach and I knew that, Phil, I knew that you your role was that you're going to be that player liaison, then I might know that you're going to skirt around an issue, so to speak, or I know that if you're telling me something, it's completely in confidence. And then I think that backs up as your personal ability to basically back back the trust element up with players. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, all that rings true from certainly the the environment I sit in up in Yorkshire and there. I think a part of it is the kind of contact time you get with the players. Certainly with, within a DPP setting, it's limited and some of that provides a challenge. Um, within the academy, it obviously becomes a little bit more and the more regular touch points and the more face-to-face contact we get. Um, but the, the kind of one of the points you mentioned there is, is just around coaches being able to kind of provide support in, in different ways and in different environments and open themselves up to that. The question I would have around it would be kind of how do we provide education for coaches or support for coaches to be improved at that? Um, is it something that, that's done? Is it something that's done often enough? Do we do it well? Um, and, and what kind of impact does that have, really? Yeah, I think I, I completely agree. I think there needs to be a lot more education on it. Um, and it's sort of the how we coach as opposed to the what we coach. Um, I, I personally don't think there's enough of it. Um, and I think it really does need to be through either conversations with people um, rather than it be like a CPD, purely because of, I think it's unique to each coach. And I also don't think that each coach can do it. I was, I've been reading Phil Jackson's book, 11 Rings, and the way that he's being able to be so open and transparent with his players, I, I don't honestly think that everybody could be that open and honest. So I think it takes a real core reflection on who you are as an individual to do that. And it's not a, a cut and paste job for everybody. So I think that's really important. Um, you know, and, and also we can, it, it depends on your setting. I've, I've also always really tried to use the physios as that buffer when, we, when I've been fortunate enough to have them. Sorry, we've, we're really fortunate to have two wonderful physios and I let them sort of have those conversations and then it's conversation with them at the end or at the beginning, or they just come in and bend my ear and say, X is really feeling this tonight or you know she's she's really not feeling comfortable she's had this going at home and you kind of then facilitate your conversations and I think it's then through us having these kind of conversations like to, like on this now that we can kind of try and draw some learning from yeah yeah it kind of rings true with um the physio side of things that you know they a lot of players spend a lot of time in treatment rooms and that's when they perhaps feel a little bit more vulnerable a little bit more open to to chat in a bit of time. So I think definitely the use of MDT teams, um, particularly kind of in the, in the full-time environments, is, is a really good uh, thought on things. Yeah, for me, I think one interesting point to look at would to be thinking about if we're a single head coach at a club or we're in quite a small environment, can we ever actually have these kind of honest conversations with people? Because as you mentioned in your um, talk about the podcast, that players are worried about how could they actually be honest with head coaches? So if we don't have the luxury of these big teams, can we actually have these honest conversations? Or is this something that maybe we need to bring in, you know, senior playing groups and work with them kind of thing? I think I think in the interim to sort of probably bring it in, I think that's kind of player-led leadership group would be quite cool. We, I've had similar things where I've put that leadership group together and then even as I know that some some of my players have been comfortable enough and create, and I've managed to obviously create an environment where they are comfortable to come to me directly or open up. There are then still those that, that just don't um, and prefer that anonymity. So that, that then comes through your players group. And I think that then comes into really who you choose as your captain. Uh, I had a fantastic, she'll hate me for this, but I had a really fantastic captain last year, but sorry. And he was so good at being able to bring players uh, issues or comments to me without actually even indicating roughly who it was but it was then just a way that we managed to get our environment in such a short period of time where then we built trust through so I think if you're the single head coach I think definitely rely on players um, and then still I think we all underestimate and particularly probably still in the professional context of the effect that a bit having a beer in, in the clubhouse at the end of it can have and that ability to sort of 
let once people's guards are down a little bit, then again you could be honest, and then it's just down to you as an individual to not sort of really break that trust or uh, call people out on something that is said in confidence and just clever as a coach and how you're going to then take on that feedback. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that you know can be difficult for single play um, single coach teams, but you know, like you say, it's about finding that next group that can help you definitely. I'll always remember one of the first, I think he was the first club chairman when I started senior coaching. I never, I never really wanted to hang around after the game. I was very much, a lot of the players were older than me as, as you know, older players and I was a young coach and I just didn't want to blur those lines between what, what I thought was being professional in that environment. And he actually said, look, I, you know, this is part of your role. Like, I'm paying you to be around and no one wants a drunk rugby player slurring over your shoulder for the whole evening but that is absolutely part of it that they feel that you're at least there long enough that they can have those conversations with you and you've got to be in the room and and sometimes you just got to suck it up and they, they might be a little bit of a mess and they might be you know five or ten beers in but if that's how they feel comfortable having that conversation with you you've kind of just got to manage that and, and deal with it. And I'd, I'd never, yeah, at the time, I just really hadn't accepted that that was actually part of what community coaching is about. And that may be the only way those players are going to going to have that conversation. So it's a good Phil, point. I, and on that as well, Phil, I think actually as, us as coaches have got to be prepared that we're going to get that wrong sometimes in the sense that we might be the ones that start with good intentions. And then I definitely have. I've then been the one that's had five or five to ten too many beers and and then you know then you have to go and sort of then not burn bridges but you then have to sort of make that apology or sort of draw attention to it and but then again that then brings the trust element back in and so long as we can when we I know vulnerability is that big key buzzword at the moment but I think it's just being able to then admit our own mistakes then allows players that freedom to really feel that they can come to us 100% no, love that. Good stuff. Alex, we're coming to you. What, uh, what's, your, uh, your, what's your piece of content? Uh, so this week I looked at the UK coaching webinar um, around coach, parent and athlete relationships. Uh, that was with Richard Shorter, or non-perfect dad as he goes by. Uh, Gordon McClelland from Working with Parents in Sport. And we actually brought on Lisa Ajomo as well, who's the mother of Bath player uh, Max Ajomo to just give a, a parental insight which I thought was a great idea and, and a really interesting way to approach it. Um, there was a massive amount of, of information on there as I'm sure there has been on, the, on a lot of webinars to try and condense it and, and pick out a few bits is, is tough um, but I think the crux of it and what it came down to is you know it's encouraging a collaborative approach between coach, parent and athletes so that the players get the best experience, the best opportunities they can do um, you know and that's with all stakeholders involved in that athlete's journey or pulling in the same direction having a similar message uh, and there was a, a, a metaphor used of a, of a three-legged stool uh, if one of those legs is, is taken away is a little bit weaker then you know it becomes uh, unbalanced or it breaks from a, a stool's point of view and, and how that relates to to an athlete potentially um, and just taking it a little bit further uh, my perspective is that some stools have more legs than others so you know athletes will have X amount of club coaches, there's, there's two parents there or other guardians, there's, you know, different school coaches, pathway coaches, there's a lot of different people that can be involved in these journeys that, that all kind of all need to be involved in any discussions. Uh, so the question I kind of asked myself from it was, how do we achieve this and how do we maximise this collaborative approach? So I kind of split it down into, into three areas, really. Um, first one would be just understanding each other's perspectives. You know, does a a coach understand a parent's perspective to a certain extent and vice versa and with the athlete involved in that as well. Um, so from an athlete's point of view, you know, do we understand why they're playing the game? Is it just a social element to it? Are they trying to push themselves onto the next level? You know, what, what's their kind of motivation behind things and do we ask those questions and do we understand what they are? Because that will definitely impact on the approach and the message that we take as a, as a group of stakeholders in that child's journey. Uh, parental point of view... You know, what are their aims and their goals for their child? You know, is it, again, that the same things come into, into play? Is it, you know, just being in a happy, safe environment, there's competent coaches there. Are they aware that they're there for a social side of things? Is there ambition for their child to push further? Um, and again, that falls back under how do we support this as coaches and how do we support this, you know, with the players as well? Um, and understanding what, what coaches are trying to achieve as well. You know, understand why things are being done on field, why it looks a certain way. 
and there was a discussion around being kind of walk, parents walking up and down a sideline, talking to each other and what conversations have been had between coaches. Can the coaches listen to the parents a little bit more perhaps on the day and just get a different perspective on those side of things? Um, and there was an interesting part I thought that came from, from Lisa in terms of each parent's background is different and how that might impact on, on a, an athlete's development and the messages that come through. So she used her son as an example. So obviously Max is, is the son of Steve Ajoma, the former, former player himself. So he's possibly got more of a, an insight and knowledge around the tech tax side of things, whereas Lisa is a, more of a business background. So it might be better in terms of the kind of situation around contracts um, that, that Max is potentially going through at Bath which I thought was an interesting take on things. So it's just important to remember that kind of each parent is different um, and a different background, different skill sets, um, and perhaps different levels of interest, interest or, or amount of time to commit to something. Um, and then there was a coaching perspective on things as well in terms of why is the coach there? You know, is it, is it in a pathway capacity where they're employed to be there? Um, is it a voluntary side of things? You know, it could be that their, their enjoyment, they want to support players, their son or, or child plays. Um, so the reasons behind coaches and, and why they're there um, and what the kind of expectations and reality is of, of what we can expect from those coaches. You know, I think volunteer coaches do a, a fantastic job. Um, and, you know, that was kind of flagged up uh, that, you know, they're there to support players and we don't want to put too much pressure on. But at the same time, there's a responsibility perhaps when you take on that role, even in a voluntary capacity, to provide some sort of service or information to, to parents and players that are there. Um, and just kind of underpinning those three points in terms of understanding, you know, sports are very emotive area. You know, the, the way people follow rugby teams or football teams is very passionate and, and that can perhaps overflow into, into kind of child's and, and athlete's relationships and environments as well. So there's a, there's a huge amount of, I think, self-awareness needed and, and a regulation of emotions when you're, you're getting into these places, into these environments, particularly if it's coming towards any kind of tough conversations that are going to come up, which is not something people look forward to at all times, but kind of important conversations to have. And just remembering that everybody within that is, is a human underneath. You know, we, we all do a particular job or, or voluntary role and there's different perspectives and different problems about encounters, but underneath it all, everyone's a human and everyone's got the kind of emotion that can be played with through, through different conversations and how they go. Um, and I think just to kind of wrap it up a little bit, I know I've, I've talked through a few things there, is the connections was massive. You know, how do we improve those connections? Uh, that leads to better conversations, perhaps more honesty, improved communication streams and improved direction of travel, like I mentioned before, those kind of stakeholders that come together. And then the communication side of things as well, that's a massive um, kind of impact on, on how this, kind of the outcomes that come from it. So the things that were flagged up just quickly were kind of be proactive and manage expectations initially, provide narrow focused information that's consistent between all stakeholders, as a coach and a parent, be open and approachable um, and just use various methods. You know, face-to-face, for example, is better when it's more individual, personalised conversation or tougher news, whereas things like logistics may be all right through apps or social media groups. So if all those things kind of come together, then hopefully, like I said at the start, everyone's on the same page, pulling in the same direction and providing a better experience or opportunity for the child. Cool. Um, one thing for me is like we talked about the ecosystem quite early on. And it's how often do coaches actually think about the ecosystem that they're in and almost conceptualise it and think about what does that actually look like? Because, as you say, like an academy ecosystem is going to look completely different to a, a community rugby ecosystem. So how much time do you actually uh, spend really planning that out? And are we sometimes a little bit guilty of using a one-size-fits-all kind of thing where we might use a parents meeting in an academy setting I think that will do the same job as it will in a community setting. So is that something we really need to think about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's um, <clears throat> a lot of information and webinars and, and education coming through around creating environments at the moment. And a lot of it, I think, is, is focused on field. And there's probably a little bit more information we can get in terms of off field. Um, but certainly some of the, the bits that came out of it and, and the bits we try and achieve is you know, let's plan these bits in advance, plan our kind of education or plan our interactions or planning touch points that we can get um, with parents or with athletes. Um, you know, so that there's certainly as a voluntary coach or if people have got your contact information, you don't want to be taking calls and questions at all times of day and night. You know, if there's, if there's built-in sections or built-in times where you can engage with that a little bit more, it probably takes a little bit of the pressure off and, and allows you to kind of focus on those particular moments. 
Um, but again, I think a part of it, <clears throat> part of it is just being open and honest and setting those expectations early on. You know, we're going to act in this way. We're going to do these bits. We're going to open at these opportunities. These are some of the education we're going to give and almost give a calendar of, of kind of what it's going to look like and, and when parents can expect those bits, they can prepare to kind of receive that information or to, to get questions around that. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing that there's a lot of people that say, you know, oh, coaches versus parents kind of thing. And I think the big thing that falls down the cracks is, like you say, we just don't plan and prepare and really lay out what we're going to do. Because if people know what we're going to do, they have the opportunity to have that conversation before it happens and it's maybe not as bad. So if we prepare our environments to actually be open and honest, then they will be. Yeah, certainly from a kind of a DPP Academy perspective, you know, there are tough conversations at regular points with players and parents. So, you know, we make sure we're open and honest up front and say these are going to be some of the potential routes and some of the potential conversations we're going to have down the line. So be prepared to, to kind of have some of these and taking it back into a community environment. It could be as easy as selection on a Saturday. You know, we know there's the half game rule, but if you've got a big squad, there's going to be different ways of doing things and everyone have their own input to that. So, yeah, massively important to kind of pre-manage expectations and, and you know support understanding of that early on from an academy environment perspective would you guys in the environments you've operated in ever designate that to a coach based on their, either skill set or the capacity within their role that i'm thinking we'll divvy up attack and defense and set piece and all this other stuff but it is the parent engagement kind of just this bolt-on that if parents talk to us <clears throat> Every coach will definitely engage, but is it, like Jed said, is it actually something you will plan for and allocate to somebody based off their capacity to be able to deliver it or their skill set to deliver it? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we'll, we're quite lucky up in York that we've got a link with the, the university at Leeds Beckett and we've got um, a lot of resource in there in terms of sports science, for example, that we can call upon to support some of the education sessions. So we will plan in and build in um, guest speakers to the academy sessions. Um, to support information and education around particular aspects of, of development. Um, but then kind of as a coaching team as well, we've also um, grouped the players. Um, so we've each got a group of players that we kind of mentor, provide touch points, give a bit more individual feedback with. Um, and, and part of that would be kind of managing that relationship with parents as well and, and taking the time to, to kind of get to know that smaller group of players a little bit better rather than trying to look at defence for 40, 50 players, we maybe look at 10 players and, and get a better understanding of those players um, and get a little bit more focus on those guys to so hopefully get a, an improved um, kind of level of feedback for those guys. Yeah, we, we've done sort of a combination of both. So we'll, we'll do sessions whereby the kids will, or the players will go out for their, their training sessions and then the club will send down sort of like a nutritionist or um, sports psych to sort of run through some stuff that they can be doing at home particularly the with where we're sort of based in, in the London category as well. We've, we've done lots on nutrition um, and sort of trying to upskill both parents and players on that one. And then as a coaching team, we sort of just work on challenging ourselves to challenge people that if you're stood there and you're not the observer or you're not the co-coach for that session, if we're fortunate enough to have lots of coaches, then it's a, how many parents can you go and interact with? Can, how, can you go and obtain a piece of information that you would only find out from a parent about a kid. Um, and that kind of helped because, again, you then sort of build into, as Alex was saying, like we started looking at the, the overall child and actually finding out that maybe they've had a, a really bad week at school or they're struggling in their grades and you can sort of support them in that holistic approach and that's worked quite well for us. Jed touched on the, the kind of parents versus bit. Do you, is that a really dangerous narrative? Do we feel it in a community environment or an academy environment in terms of starting to, like, as Alex said, that they've got, is their kids, like they love their kids, they want what's best for them. There may be a, a, a real big level of ignorance around what best for their child looks like. But is it a really dangerous thing where we start to to view them as, you know, Enemy would be too strong a word, but I, I I really struggle with these, you know, something versus something. Whereas you've got it, you you can't do this without parents. I'm just interested in what your guys' thoughts would be on on how that narrative has come about, and also how we change that narrative. I think for me, like it comes at I'm a PE teacher as well, so I'm quite a person to sort of having those like a lot of that parent information evenings, and I think the narratives come from us as coaches feeling threatened. And people feeling like even as volunteers, when when let's be honest, we all start out as volunteers. That 
you're suddenly thrusted in front of this group of children that you're now responsible for. Uh, you've got almost twice as many parents stood on the sidelines watching you. Uh, you're trying to herd cats if it's under eights and stuff. And, and then you, you've almost got 30 pairs of eyes on you trying to trying to pick fault. And as you said, like children are the parents' number one priority. And I think we're not, as we've alluded to, like if we're not as honest and we're not transparent in our intentions, that ambiguity can lead to conflict further down the line. I think where I've been coaching, I think if you can be honest and open from the start, then that kind of de-escalates it before it gets anywhere. But I think definitely that narrative of parent versus coach just comes from the coach feeling threatened because you're usually the one, you're usually in the minority of numbers, really. I don't know if anyone else has got anything to reflect on that. Yeah, I think like you say, early tends to really happen when um, something has happened. So if we can plan in advance and actually get that information there, it doesn't happen. So you only tend to hear about coach versus parent when something's gone badly wrong already. And that tends to be because we haven't communicated early enough. So like you say, it ties into that honesty and transparency very early on. I think it's a little bit perception of of how things have been in the past um, and are we, is everybody as, as kind of a group, a group of stakeholders up to speed in, in terms of the new education, the way we're looking at working with parents nowadays, there's, there's definitely been a huge focus in the last few years of engaging parents more and utilising parents more and, and bringing them onto the journey um, as a part of the journey rather than just kind of on the side, if, if that makes sense. Um, so I think there's that message we will need to try and keep getting out there and say, look, it's not how it used to be. It's not that you're on the side and you know, you'll get your feedback from the kid. We want you to to come on board and, and ask those questions and have those tough conversations. And, you know, and that's where we've got to promote those relationships and, and have that, that openness and, and that approachability where they feel comfortable coming up to you and speaking to you, even if it's a tough conversation, you know, we know as coaches, we've got to have those tough conversations and it's not something you ever look forward to, but you know, we need to prepare ourselves for those and just be honest and, and kind of like you said before, you guys both saying just pre-managing expectations and, and teeing that up um, as early as possible is definitely beneficial. Love it. There's, yeah, I mean, yes, I guess there's tons more that we could probably delve into, but uh, a little bit conscious of time. So, uh, Jed, we'll come to you. Yeah, um, I looked at John Mitchell's uh, breakdown CPD, which is part of the England Rugby Series. John Mitchell, obviously experienced international coach, now working with England as a defence coach. Um, it really ties into a new uh, uh, webinar, CPD, that's on the England website. So I really strongly suggest you go and look at that as well. So what the webinar was, was just a chat between John and a couple of the England coaches. Um, and it really covered the breakdown. So it was really interesting at looking at how um, John really broke down his um, methodology for coaching. So what he tended to do was really think about what can players actually do first. So if he knows in his mind that he's got a really good jackling team, does he then go out and train them to jackle and really work on that strength? Or if he's not got quite a quick team, does he really work on little bits and other little bits and pieces and really set a methodology that works for his team? And so he's got to know that player before he coaches them, which I thought, you know, makes a lot of sense. Is it something we always do? Or do we go out and try and copy something from somewhere else? His methodology is then really, um, really, really simple for me. That It works in almost three stages. So that he'll prepare players by giving them really basic um, instruction first. So say for a ball carrier, it'll be going, um, going straight, um, aim for the weaker side of a defender, and then go straight again. And that's all they'll do for a first little bit of a drill. Um, after that, they'll work on the fall. So fall forward, go around. And everything is working just on the feedback on these fundamentals. So it isn't trying to do everything all at once it's really just breaking it down into stages um there was a coach on the webinar who kept trying to push it into should we go into a game straight away and john kept bringing it back to no the way that i do it is that almost we do the fundamentals first we understand how it may differ the fundamental so an example he gave was if a ball carrier falls in a different position how does that first um support player get over him so there's a game that he played where instead of falling the same way every time the ball carrier fell in different directions so the support player had to get round and that was almost different pictures that he was having to work out 
So his decision making about where he went to get over the ball. So really using drills has just gone up a little bit. So now the players having to change and think about it. And he's already been doing the decision making before he's gone into a full game. Um, and really his um, logic behind this was if we can start giving them the pitches early, once they're in a game, they can start seeing them a lot easier. So by the time that we're playing the game in training, that we should see these pitches and actually make more efficient use of what we're doing, which I thought was really good. In terms of the technical element, again, it's quite simple. That um, He's talking about how with England rugby, they tend to work with continuity rather than retention of ball. So what that means is that they're trying to get over really quickly and get the ball moving as fastly as quickly as possible. So again, this goes back to the fact that with um, quite skilled players, it's easy to do. Um, if we're thinking about working with kids, would we maybe look at retention more than continuity because they can't get organised as quickly? Um, and after doing the initial drill and then really working these pictures, as he kept referring them to, so the different situations they could find themselves in, they worked it into a full game with constraints. So if somebody didn't show the proper fundamentals that he'd worked on in the drill, it was going to be a turnover, um, which obviously made sure that stuff was there. We can see that really working on these fundamentals, that we can always do it within a game as well, and it's best to build up to it. So the big thing I took out of it was the process of rather than just putting people straight into a game or just working straight on drills, is this um, adaption throughout a session. So we work with a very basic understanding to start off with and keep moving our way up until we're in a game and we can start then putting constraints on. Um, and if we need to go back and work on stuff, then we'd send people out into a skill zone um, and work on it there. There's a lot of technical information in there, but for me, the big takeaway was how that he approached his methodology to make sure you know that these messages got across and that the fundamentals are the main focus, or the feedback was on the fundamentals, and that, you know, that's what the focus of the session was. And he never really strayed from it. I think it's really good if you can go and watch it, just to think about how you might transfer that into a session about anything that you might do. So I've got a question, it might be a little bit controversial, but do you think uh, in the community and in the pathway that coaches are doing enough of this uh, sort of more specific skill development practice and i'll use drill as a as a as a lack of a better term or do you think we're we've gone down a road of everything is game-based and we're starting to lose some of those core skills in the game yeah i've got a feeling that we're maybe losing a little bit of the skill um we're seeing players that can do some really amazing things absolutely amazing things with the ball but maybe the skill of the rest of the bulk of players isn't as good as it maybe was a couple of years ago. Um, so there's a lot less understanding as well. And maybe people are only working to their strengths. So, for example, if you've got a player that can kick a ball really well, nine times out of ten in a game session, you will see him kick a ball. We need to really work on these basic fundamentals because that is how we unlock everything else for me. So if we start to understand how to make a pass, then we can pass and kick. So for me, like I say, I think getting this understanding of fundamentals and working on that is huge. Okay, I've got a question just to pick up on that for all three of you. And I, George, we love controversy. So this is, we're, we're into this now. How long have you guys got? What, what's the difference between a game and a drill? For me, uh, if you're going with a drill, it is, a, it's, you can almost have it as a game, but it's a condensed, smaller-sided uh, session or part of the session which works on and focuses on one core technical skill. And I would say that, yes, there is an element of tactical decision-making within it, but fundamentally it's working on the core principles and movement of a specific, how I would define it. A game would then be moving that movement pattern, that movement skill into more of a tactical decision-making. So sort of as Jed was talking about, as John sort of scaffolds up his, his skill, we sort of start with the fundamental movement in the drill and then when we get to a game, we're just adding more tactical decision-making involved. So if, if the fundamental movement skill was applied and you could earn points or move through levels, is that still a drill or is that a game? You're, you can gamify drills, that's fine. And I think, I think that's maybe where we're getting lost 
is that I, I have, I've, there's no issue why you can't gamify drills and make them progressively harder and eventually get to a game. That's that's fantastic, and I think that's where we were saying like sometimes we get lost in that, and I think sometimes coaches think that that gamification has to just be a game, and actually no, it could just be level one is you go complete a two v one, level two is then you complete a three v one, level three is then you complete a three v two, and you're just increasing the difficulty. It's still a drill because that those aren't games, but it's a game with it's a game made up of several drills, and I think that's sort of where. I was obviously in bits of that webinar that Jeb was talking about is where John sort of starts adding those extra bits of elements in. I don't know if the boards have got anything to add. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of go at what point then if we're gamifying and, and progressing that that drill, at what point does it actually become a game? What numbers we're working with and, and you know when do we kind of not draw a line, but when does it transition from one to the other? Um, my take on kind of drill versus game would be the amount of varying pressures that come within that. You know, in a in a, a skill zone or a drill, um, it's a bit more controlled. We can limit the amount of pressures or constrain the pressures, the varying pressures and where it's coming from. Within a game, um, potentially more stimulus to react to, more decisions to be made. Um, and, you know, does it allow coaches in, the, in their comfort zone to to see the skills within a game as much or do they feel more comfortable within, within a drill where they can isolate their focus on that rather than trying to pick it out of everything else within a game um, that may be, may be taking place. Yeah, I think it's interesting watching uh, John Mitchell as well because he was referring to stuff that I would traditionally call a drill, a game. So it was really simple of passing a ball between two players. Um, he says go, and then either one or two support players gets up and gets over the ball. He was calling that a game. Now, I assume, and I you know, don't really know, I assume because there's that little bit of decision-making in it, he's calling that a game. Because, like, is a three-on-two representative of a game or is that a drill? Um, because there's that little bit of decision-making in it. So, is yeah. And I think we get bogged down in this, you know, drills versus game um, conversation when really everything should replicate the game anyway. We should be doing everything that's similar to a game. So there should actually be no difference that really we might be focusing on something. So that's part of the game. So, game. To jet on that, then would you argue maybe then it's as a, a better way of phrasing it is get rid of drill or a game, and it's how many uh, options are available to players. Is it a low number of options or a high number of options, and then that can dictate what skills you're working on? Yeah, I definitely say that. That really we're talking about decision making. So if there's more decisions, it becomes a game for some reason. If there's no decisions, it's not really a game. It's a practice of a skill. So I think, you know, that's not something to get bogged down in, really. I think that's a really good point. I, to my mind, it, it definitely becomes around how many options you can perform in that practice. Qualify that by saying, so the, the, the classic, um, you know, right, I'm just going to run up, I'm going to get tackled, I'm going to fall and I'm going to present. So is that, is that picture, are we, are we dealing with the cues and, are, you know, are we kind of putting all those pieces together? But if I only ever practice one way of falling and one way of presenting I mean that becomes very repetitive of one thing actually do we want to be saying yeah I need you to be able to do four or five different ways I need you to be to be able to react and manage your body in various forms of contact and I was definitely in that you know anti-drills place and I kind of I just I just did a load of reading and, and listened to a load of people and it was kind of actually like where does one stop and one start? And I, I think my mindset, the, the versus bit is what really bugs me now. It, it should never be versus. It, it's ultimately everything operates on a continuum and we'll just change where we are in that continuum for pressure and um, you know options and decision-making and all those types of things. And I think where I sit now is I'm, I'm anti-bad practice. You know, so if you do you know, you've got 20 kids and there's two lines of 10 and two run around one cone into a channel and one run runs around another and it's a 2v1 and 17 of your 20 kids aren't doing anything. For me, that's shit. It, whether that's a drill or a game, class it however you want, but it's just not well designed and it's not good practice. So I, I don't actually care now whether it's a drill or a game. I just care whether it's good or not. And there's probably... You know, there's a lot of subjectivity within whose view of good or not it is. 
but, but that's definitely where my thought process has, has come, you know, on that discussion, which, which for me has been a positive because it, it stopped that. Oh, no, you can't do that. And it's like, well, why can't you? If that's appropriate and it's well constructed, like who am I to say that's, that's right or wrong? Yeah, I definitely agree. It's um, more of a sliding scale than a, a versus and, t- and totally agree with the, the kind of points you're saying there. And, and this is where kind of part of the skill of, of coaching, the art of coaching comes into it, is being able to recognise within an activity that you're doing, is this hitting the mark that, that, you know, that I'd expected that we want to achieve or what the kids are capable of or players are capable of? Do we need to rein it back a little bit? Do we need to add a little bit onto it? You know, and that observation side of things, I think, is a key part of it and being able to adapt and adjust based on, on what we're seeing in front of us. Alex, do you think there's enough coach education out there for, I mean, we're talking about this now as, as without knowing our own numbers, maybe four, four guys who've done a fair amount of rugby coaching and, and, and take time and that it's invested in it to, to sort of perfect our craft or, or to get better. But for those volunteer coaches or the enthusiastic mums and dads, do you think there's enough coach education simplified in the earlier stages to actually be able to recognise the art, as you said, that art of coaching or teaching to recognise that you're not quite getting what you want from a session? Uh, not sure on that, to be honest. Um, I think in terms of formal CPD and formal education, um, other courses that cater to that, um, not so sure. I think informal CPD is possibly a really good way to go about that and and get out there and speak to other people or go and see different environments or speak to, you know, people that are working perhaps at a, a level above uh, where you are. So if it's a community coach, come and see some of the pathway activity and speak to some of the pathway coaches. If it's pathway coaches, can we get access to, to guys that are working in the professional game a bit more often and just try and speak to other people and, and try and use that informal CPD um, as an opportunity. But I also think it kind of falls under coach preferences as well. Um, I certainly find myself more... Of an observational type of coach I'll, I'll step back a little bit from a lot of the sessions and just observe what's going on so maybe I feel a little bit more comfortable in that way whereas other coaches that are a bit more involved in the sessions may miss that opportunity to to kind of stand off and, and see you know what is actually happening within the game um, and, and that's where I think co-coaching and coaching teams becomes really valuable um, in terms of assigning roles and, and supporting each other so if I'm focused on a game within a game someone could come over to me and say actually I think I've noticed this from the outside maybe we should tweak something um, so there's a, whole, there's a whole kind of world around that side of things um, that I think there's, there's always room for improvement on and be good to see more of. I think it's a great question. And I think you, when you frame it or set it against the fact that the academics in the skill act space can't agree, not, not that academics necessarily ever would agree, but when there, there, there just clearly is no right answer. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that as great as that is because it allows lots of people to explore the range of options available. I also think it makes it really challenging for the volunteers at, at you know, a kid's level or mums and dads that are just getting into it to actually know what, like what's the best steer. Like it's not right versus wrong, but it's what is going to be most appropriate because if everybody else further up the chain is still trying to kind of weigh that up and work that out for themselves. Like what, what kind of hope as a, as a really fresh coach got, I'm not sure I haven't got an answer for that, but it's a great question. I think the big thing is to do what works for you best. And that's what we keep coming back to that. If you are a volunteer dad coach on a Sunday morning is you trying to replicate what you've seen on rugby tonight going to work. Or is you letting your kids play touch that you actually know what you're talking about and you're in your depth level? Is that the best thing? And maybe it is that we don't all need to be the best coaches in the world because we're all on this podcast. So, you know, that's all we need to do is just work at our level. And if everyone goes home with a smile on their face and comes back next week and the game keeps growing, that's brilliant. Yeah, no, that completely agree. Completely. And I also think we've got to be appreciative of how long it takes to become a better coach in the same way for, for community players, it will take years and years and years to get better with, I, I think may, and, and I, I've definitely thought this in my head, I'm expecting coaches that have picked up the game very recently to suddenly be really good coaches very quickly. And that's, that's just not, it's not practical. It's not realistic. So yeah. Or oh, we could go on for a long time on this one, but um, we will shift it on. So uh, guys, what are you looking forward to in the coming week? What have you seen that's caught your eye? So there is a, I'm just trying to make, relocate it, but I'll make sure that the information is straight. 
before we go to it but jenny cody uh, of uk coaching is hosting a webinar on friday night uh, so if you get her on twitter we'll put the handle out but it's all around uh, basketball and beers and their big focus is the last dance um so really looking forward to getting on that with probably some coaches who have got a bit more specialist knowledge of the sport and kind of going really interested in listening and delving into what their perceptions are of that what was, in my opinion, probably one of the best sports documentaries around. Yeah, I was definitely going to um, suggest that one as well, given that I've, I've watched The Last Dance and I've, I've seen a lot of stuff on, on social media that uh, a lot of people have been following that, so definitely one to, to kind of keep an eye out for. Um, another one that's interesting to me, I think, are the, the scrum sessions that England would be doing. Um, two of those, it's definitely not my area of expertise as a, as a back, um, so it's something to, to kind of get me outside my comfort zone, but I think interesting getting the referee's perspective, and I've seen one or two of the webinars as well, um, and, and take from that as a coach, you know, how does a referee referee a certain situation, and what implication does that have for you as a coach, and how you put your, your points across to the players, so be really interested to see a little bit more around the scrum, um, a different perspective to, to what I usually look at. Yeah, I'm going to go with something completely left field. Um, UCLan, uh, so University of Central Lancaster, are doing a webinar on Wednesday with a recruitment analyst from Brighton FC, talking about how technical skill helps with uh, recruitment. So for you know that next level up and really thinking about technical skill, I think that'd be really interesting. Nice, love that, great stuff. Um, my one this week, probably not giving them enough of a shout out actually, but um, we record this on a, on a Friday evening and it goes out on a Sunday. So they, they record and broadcast on a Saturday morning. So it kind of falls in the gap. But uh, Jack Patterson and Jonathan Fisher um, do the Saturday breakfast and they've got Phil Dowson on tomorrow morning. So you, by the time this comes out, you'll have to go back and uh, back and watch or listen. But um, yeah, they, they put out some really great stuff and uh, listening to Phil on the Magic Academy uh, when he was on with Peely a little while ago, I think was um, just really interesting in his journey because he's he's pretty new to to coaching at a professional level. So, um, but it seemed a really down to earth, interesting guy who's who's gone on a, a cool journey. So that'll be a good one to uh, to catch up on if you can as well. Superb. Gents, thank you very much. I'm going to round up the roundup. So we hope you found it useful. Thank you to my three guests for their excellent insight. We definitely could have gone on for a lot longer than we did. So it might need to be a follow up at some stage. Uh, as we've said throughout, links to all the content discussed will be shared in the podcast blurb. Please subscribe, like and share. And as we ride off into the sunset, I'd like to wish you all the best. Stay safe and go well. Bye.